Hi, and welcome back to the Institute of Performance Nutrition's We Do Science podcast. This is episode 144, and today is a very hot day where I am, and I'm assuming it is where my, my guest is, uh, all the way down in sunny, tropical Exeter. Um, welcome, Andy Jones. How are you doing, mate? Oh, good line. Thank you. Yeah, it is very hot down here today. Very hot. It's a bit of a steamer here. I'm, uh, I get, well, firstly, we're British, so we like talking about the weather, and secondly... <laughs> We're not used to heat, yeah. uh, which is the real, uh, the real uh, problem with this uh, lockdown we're going through in this pandemic. It's not the virus. It's the fact that we have to deal with the heat. <laughs> um, so listen, look, we've had a chat about what will be a very similar topic, which um, is dietary nitrates and physical performance, something you're very well known for. Of course, you're, you're known for a number of other areas of research, but this is an area that we had a, a conversation for uh, on the podcast, which followed um, some lectures you delivered for us um, in London, um, amazingly, uh, five, six years ago. I just can't believe it. I'll link to the podcast for anyone who wants to listen to that podcast as well and see how similar uh, the information might be, which is something that you'll help bring us up to date on. But before we get into this fascinating um, area, um, maybe you could just give us a quick background as to as to who Andy Jones is, and of course, uh, um, back no, you were you were still Professor Andy Jones when I first met you. So, so uh, um, um, that's awesome. So yeah, give us a background, and um, we'll go from there. Okay, so I'm um, Professor of Applied Physiology at the University of Exeter. I've been here since uh, 2004 or five, I think. Um, so fair, fair amount of time. I'm presently the Assistant Deputy Vice Chancellor for Research and Impact as well, which is a job I took on around January time, which I'm enjoying, except um, as I was telling you before we started, it's, uh, it's all gone a bit pear-shaped because of the, the COVID crisis. So it's all been ha- all hands to the deck trying to you know, reopen labs and get people back back into their research. So that's been quite a challenge. Um, yeah, that's it really. You know, I'm interested in endurance, exercise performance. I'm a physiologist rather than a nutritionist, but obviously there's a bit of overlap um, when it comes to those two topics. And I'm especially interested in elite endurance exercise performance. So I've done a bit of consultancy with um, you know, UK Athletics, English Institute of Sport, Nike, and so on. So I'd like to do some fundamental research, but I like to apply it to the real world as well, and especially the, the world of elite endurance athletics. That's brilliant. And in, you know, that's particularly relevant with my mission here because um, it's all about trying to look at the science and and you know translate it into practice but also trying to look at whether that evidence is actually relevant for practice because of course there's plenty of 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 mostly decent science but there's obviously plenty of not so great science as well but even the great science isn't always relevant to to practice and um it was sort of a humble background that you gave for yourself where actually you yourself have been a fairly elite athlete haven't you and um You've certainly worked with some of the world's finest uh, athletes and in, endurance athletes. Do, just because I think this is interesting, um, for you as a, as a researcher and as a, as a practitioner, since you've worn both hats and do wear both hats, how, how useful have you found your own previous experience as an athlete and, and also um, research, but also as a practitioner working with those types of athletes, have you found that to have, have had a benefit to you? It definitely does. I think you know if you're if you're trying to work with an elite an elite athlete, having having the rapport with them, having the right language, um, having the right phrases, all of that's really important, and it gives you that bit of credibility if they know that you've done been there and done it a bit yourself. So if you um, have someone on, on a treadmill and measure their various physiological parameters and then you suggest what type of training that they might want to do to remedy any deficiencies. Um, you know, if, if it's someone who's never experienced the session that you're prescribing for them or suggesting that they do, they might look at you with some skepticism. But if they, under, you know, and it helps you do the prescription as well. So um, you get to understand what it is that might improve running economy or lactate threshold. And you know the sorts of sessions, uh, not only the, the types of sessions, but how those sessions feel and how they fit into a training framework. So it, it definitely helps a lot. What I do find is that 
you know, you can think of research and practice and teaching as three separate entities, all of which kind of overlap and are quite symbiotic, really. So sometimes it's the athletes and coaches who come up with the questions that you can address in your research. And that, um, you know, you, you embed that in your lectures, which the students enjoy. And it's all kind of self-fulfilling, really. It's, um, it's, it's, a, it's a good way of doing it. Um, yeah, and so that illustrates your teaching. Um, the, the practical questions inform your research, but the research then you can use to alter practice. It's, yeah, it, it all works all really right. quite nicely. And, and I was always keen to find myself a, a job that sat between all of those things because, yeah, you know, I, I've, at different times I've sat in the one camp in isolation from the others, and it's not so much fun. If you can sit on that, you can, I can just picture this pie chart, you know, with these three overlapping circles, and you can sit in the middle and dip in and out of all three and do all of them reasonably competently, then I think you're onto a good thing. Yeah, to have that vantage of being able to see where the science is coming and where it's going and, you know, that, that, those feedback loops, those feedback mechanisms is something that we all, you know, we, we don't have necessarily as much as maybe we should have where there is that, that relationship between the athletes, the, the research institutions and the researcher practitioner who is able to be you know, yes, in the club, in the coalface, working with the athletes, but is also able to, to feed back that information to the research institution. Um, um, I mean, that's for a whole nother sort yeah. of podcast in itself. But so where I'm going with this is, you know, when we look at sport and exercise, particularly sport and exercise nutrition, we are finding ourselves now with a plethora of sort of options, uh, particularly in the form of, uh, well, initially in the form of supplements, because that was the heavy focus, something, of course, we're going to come back to in the form of an ergogenic aid that you've done a lot of work on. Um, but other things as well that I like to refer to as tools in the toolbox. You know, as practitioners, we, we need to have that toolbox, appreciate what should and shouldn't be in there, or at least understand the strengths and limitations of those of those tools and actually quite often learn, you know, understand when not to use them, which is a pretty common scenario with, with ergogenic aids and supplements and so on, um, which is something that we'll, that we'll dig into. Um, but look, we could go on for hours about this and we should probably focus a little bit more on dietary nitrates and physical performance. Um, but, but quickly, before we get into this particular area, can you just quickly... Um, Give us an overview of the one of the other areas of of research that you have focused on, which does of course have some crossover with this because it's not just about nutrition or an, a supplement. You also have spent quite a lot of time looking at, at you know the the physiology of the body it, it, you know as it exercises um, and particularly as it relates to performance um, but there's a, a crossover there which neatly fits into what you just said about having your sort of three feet, so to speak, in different camps. Um, you know, what areas were you working on and how have you felt that that's fed into this area of research that we're going to get into? Yeah, it's, that's a good question, actually, because it does link up with what we've um, just been discussing. So, I mean, if you're interested in endurance exercise performance, you'll be familiar with, you know, the kind of holy trinity, if you like, a VO2 max running economy or, or, or efficiency as it is for some other sports, and lactate threshold, lactate turn point, critical power, maximal steady state, all of that stuff, which is a sort of what is the sustainable fraction of your VO2 max for a given event. We know that if you exercise below a certain metabolic threshold, it's sustainable for a reasonably long period of time, and the mechanisms of fatigue might be rather different to if you exercise above that threshold and you're in a different domain, you get different fatigue mechanisms and you can become exhausted much more much more rapidly. So I've always been interested in those things. And, and then the fourth one is the VO2 kinetics, which I think gets overlooked a bit. For some sports, when you start to exercise, the rapidity with which you can turn on your aerobic um, system, generate energy uh, oxidatively, is, is an important variable as well. So it's really those, those four components. Um, so if you're interested in what limits endurance exercise performance, then you know those four things really well, and you're interested in how you change them. Can you change them through training? Can you change them through some other alteration to practice, like warm-up, or can you change them through nutrition? And the way I came to dietary nitrate was um, via a paper that I saw 
which indicated that taking um, a supplement, sodium nitrate, it actually was in the paper that I read, actually changed cycling efficiency. It made the oxygen cost of cycling at a submaximal work rate lower, which was really quite remarkable because typically, even if you do long duration, long term endurance exercise training, cycling efficiency in particular is quite a difficult thing to change. Running economy does change, but often that's for biomechanical rather than physiological reasons. So when I saw this opportunity for a dietary supplement or dietary intervention to alter efficiency or economy, then immediately, you know, it's immediately like, well, that's pretty interesting. I don't, I'm not sure I believe it, but that's, if it's true, it's fascinating because it clearly has knock-on effects in terms of performance as well. So, so that was the thing. I, I saw this paper it was in a physiology journal, but it involved a nutritional intervention. And it was like, oh, actually, I'm interested in economy and efficiency and oxygen uptake. And this is, this is an intervention that apparently can change it. We'd better look at this a little bit more closely. And to my surprise, really, um, you know, we, we confirmed what that first paper showed. And it's been, you know, 10 or 12 years of experimentation ever since. It's taken me in a completely different direction. Yeah, it's, it's interesting you mentioned that. And in the previous section, we were talking about these other areas because as a performance nutritionist, considering, you know, what we want to do with our, what we can do to help our athletes beyond just keeping them healthy, which of course is our prime directive, of course, uh, fueling and, and so on. And then, you know, body composition, all the usual stuff. But when we're talking about trying to support performance, um, it gets into a gray area because that's, that, that's a whole lot more than the nutrition. Um, so understanding whether your tool that we're going to use our intervention, for example, an ergogenic aid is likely to have any impact mm. gets difficult because it's, it's easy for us to be enthusiastically throwing recommendations at our athletes. But if we don't understand the likelihood of whether this even is going to have any impact at all, um, you know, we, 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 you know, we talk about limiting factors, but, you know, uh, and we can talk about that from a physiological perspective, but we don't necessarily always talk about that from a knowledge uh, and how the, no, the a lack, you know, what are the limiting knowledge factors that um, influences how we inform our practice and how we function as a performance nutritionist, which is one reason why I do these podcasts is to try and assist mm. You absolutely need to know what it is that a particular nutritional intervention in this case is purported to change. And then if you do manage to enact that change, what, you know, is that change relevant to the performance of the athlete that you're working with? That's you know, a crucial thing. I've seen athletes, um, food cupboards that are full of all sorts of unnecessary supplements or things that, you know, just have no, um, no connection whatsoever to the energy, the energy systems or the fatigue mechanisms that are likely to be operative within their, within their support, within their um, sport or event. So, yeah, you, you've really got to connect it up. There's no good throwing the kitchen sink and everything. You have to be very strategic in which tools you apply at what, which, which time. And also, when, as uh, with my practitioner hat on, I'm looking at the evidence that exists on that topic and trying to decide whether or not I feel that is a worthy intervention. You know, th th it goes the other way too, where the researchers, the scientists that were conducting the research and producing, you know, publishing this information that I use for my practice and in certain cases, the practitioners will be heavily dependent on the interpretation of the authors, um, which obviously comes in varying forms as well as of the journal and, and so on. Um, and you know, there may be a scenario where somebody was a responder or a non-responder, um, but that might have had nothing to do <laughs> with, mm. with, the, uh, with the supplement, for example. It might have anything to do with how the study was conducted and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I mean, just from that perspective, uh, I, I know sometimes I use the phrase not responders and non-responders, and I can see horror appearing in people's faces. But, I mean, that is an important factor here, isn't it? Yeah, and, you know, just perhaps turning to nitrate specifically on that, it's, it's definitely something because, I don't know if you were going to ask me this specifically, but when you take nitrate in your diet or via a supplement, then the first step in that process to make it bioactive is for bacteria in your mouth to act on that nitrate as part of their own metabolism and convert it into nitrite. But what we're finding is that different people have different amounts of bacteria and different, you know, there are, I don't like to say good and bad bacteria, but some are nitrate reducers and others aren't. And it's that whole community of bacteria operating together that's important. 
And, um, and we're finding that the, the oral microbiota really is quite sensitive to change. It changes with age and it changes a bit with fitness and it certainly changes with macronutrient content in your diet. It depends how much nitrate you consume. You completely obliterate it if you take mouthwash. So, you know, a standard amount of nitrate given to 10 different people is likely to affect their conversion or sorry, the, the conversion of nitrate to nitrite in those 10 people is likely to be very different. And if you don't elevate plasma nitrate and nitrite and potentially muscle nitrate and or nitrite, then you're not likely to see any physiological benefits either for health or for performance. So, so absolutely, you know, I think um, there are, there are I, I can understand people's sort of skepticism about responders and non-responders, but in practice we find that it's kind of true. It's, you shouldn't use it as an excuse, um, you know, when a supplement doesn't work, but if you get an individual who repeatedly responds or repeatedly doesn't respond, that gives you some information as to whether that person is likely to benefit or not, obviously. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think, you know, that's one of the things that's absolutely true for, for nitrate in terms of responsiveness is the existence of the right bacteria to enable that initial nitrate to nitrite reduction. But also we're thinking that um, the storage of that nitrate within skeletal muscle is important too. And we're just learning now that muscle, you know, certainly is sensitive to dietary nitrate intake, but how much and how rapidly you know, nitrate gets into muscle is not very well known and it's very likely that there are inter-individual differences there for example in the abundance of transport of proteins from the, from the blood to the muscle for example yeah well i mean look this just this is a thing that crops up all the time in my conversations with experts such as yourself on this stuff and you know i think one of the ultimate uh, conclusions is is we still know so little about this stuff <laughs> um but it's so you know it's so tempting particularly on the commercial end where you see people write up articles in magazines or you know supplement reviews it's very black and white this will increase performance in da -da -da -da, but it's it's so much more complicated than that and of course going back to responders and non-responders is yes people are responders and non-responders of course why are they responders and non-responders takes you down another path <laughs> but as a practitioner obviously we want to have a response ideally um, and I guess the other thing is, is we want to do no harm, obviously. So, um, we'll, we'll, anyway, we'll, look, we'll, we'll get into all this. Um, so, I know you, you, your interest was piqued on this topic when you read that paper um, on uh, sodium nitrate supplementation, was it? Yeah. I mean, you know, reading it's one thing, but then dedicating years of your life to studying it. How did that happen? Well, I didn't know it was going to be years. It could have been weeks or months if it hadn't worked, you know. And, and to be honest, I was a bit sceptical when I saw it because it was, I think, three days of sodium nitrate supplementation and, and the oxygen cost of submaximal cycling was reduced by 3 to 5%, I think. You know, something reasonably reasonably large. And I thought this is a bit strange, really. But, I mean, it was certainly worth pursuing. Um, we thought we could, you know, get one publication out of it, even if it was to sort of refute those findings. Um, but lo and behold, um, we use beetroot juice, by the way, rather than sodium nitrate. You can use the salt, which is sodium or potassium nitrate, or you can use um, you know, natural inorganic nitrate, which is in green leafy vegetables and beetroots and such like. And we decided to use that, partly because it was hard to get hold of the salt and partly because it's better to give natural substances to people anyway if you can. And um, we went for six days, I think, um, in those days, there was no concentrated form of beetroot juice, so we used the sort of long, long drinks, half a litre per day wow. of beetroot juice for six days, or a placebo. And um, yeah, and at the end of that, we measured oxygen uptake at a specific work rate, submaximal work rate on the cycle ergometer. And then on another day, we asked them to go for as long as they could at a much higher work rate. And first of all, we showed that the oxygen uptake at the low work rate was lower. So there was seemingly an improved efficiency, for want of a better word. And um, when we asked them to go for as long as they could at a higher work rate, they, they went for considerably longer as well. So it was a double whammy. And you, you'd expect that to be the case, to be the, the, that tie-in. But in that first paper on the sodium nitrate, they hadn't investigated performance per se. So it was nice to link the improved efficiency with the actual improved performance. And I was like, oh, right. Well, I didn't, didn't necessarily expect that to occur, but now it has. This opens up a completely new world of investigation for us. And as you say, it's been um, yeah, another decade worth of um, trying to tease this stuff out. And there's been all sorts of 
interesting twists and turns and you know things have morphed over that time but uh, I think there are just as many questions now as there were as there were then just different questions yeah yeah well as yes I guess as always and and uh, it is if nothing else a really interesting area because we're looking at something that has the potential to do something really quite amazing for certain people in certain scenarios which they absolutely are going to want to know about so Let's go back to that, but maybe we should just define a few things first. Um, you know, we're, we're, we're going to talk about nitric oxide and specifically dietary sources of that, and and um, that will be a lot of what we talk about. But you know, you, you you referred to this as an ergogenic aid just a few minutes ago. What I mean, what you know, just so we make sure everyone understands, what, what do you mean by that? and and um, why is that relevant? Um, um, as it relates to nitric oxide. So what, how do you define ergogenic? Do you, yeah, well, I mean, ergo is work. Is that from the Latin, probably? And genic is generating. So it's a, it's a substance or a practice that promotes the ability to do work, basically, which is what we want if we're interested in performance. If you can do more work in total or certainly more work per unit time, then you're actually going to get from A to B a bit quicker or you're going to be able to produce more power. Um, yeah, so, so that's what an ergogenic aid is. And um, in terms of, um, you mentioned nitric oxide, so we should probably define that. So I mentioned that when you take nitrate in, it gets converted into nitrite, and then it can very easily become nitric oxide then. And, and nitric oxide is a very important molecule in human physiology. It does a bunch of stuff. It's almost, you know, the list is as long as your arm. Um, you can't, you know, can't survive for very long without the stuff. We, we actually generate nitric oxide all the time through a completely different pathway. We use um, uh, arginine, an amino acid in our bodies, and we combine that with oxygen, that's, uh, and the, the, the catalyst is an enzyme called um, nitric oxide synthase. So we, we're generating nitric oxide constantly, and byproducts of that reaction are actually nitrite and nitrate anyway. So all of that stuff is being, being processed. But we didn't realize until quite recently that you could take that reaction in the other direction, if you like. So we knew that arginine could become nitric oxide, which could become nitrite and nitrate. But we now know that under certain circumstances, and especially when there isn't much oxygen available, and maybe that NOS, that enzyme that I mentioned, becomes a bit dysfunctional, you rely more upon that. Actually, it's a relatively simple pathway compared to the, the one that's better known, but you go nitrate, nitrite, NO. And you can augment the stores of nitrate and nitrite in your body through dietary means. So in particular, by the consumption of salad vegetables, basically. So, um, yeah, so essentially, what if you've got a lower oxygen uptake for a given power output, you're a little bit more efficient. If you think of it another way, for the same oxygen uptake, you'd be able to produce more power. So in that sense, nitrate is ergogenic because you're, generating more power per unit time for the yeah. same amount of work, work same, same amount of internal energy production. So, I mean, you know, look, anyone even just has a cursory look at, you know, how the body produces energy or converts um, food into fuel and then how that ends up as, you know, fuel for muscular function and and so on sees a lot of crazy diagrams, you know, and, and one way or the other, even if we think we sort of understand it, it's still way more complicated than that in reality, partly because of the sort of the integrative relationship of all the different systems that occur in the body. And you just pointed out that nitric oxide, of course, is involved in basically everything one way or the other. Yeah. You know, I, firstly, how do you differentiate the everything from specifically that which is relevant to to performance because again it gets complicated in these sorts of things because you know an athlete isn't just an athlete they're also a human being and they still need to have you know decent blood pressure and cognitive function all the things that we'll get into but specifically this has piqued yours and others interest in performance and particularly via some form of exogenous you know method um you know why why is this of of so much interest and continues to be of so much interest rather than just the body will get on with it if you eat enough vegetables so to speak 
Yeah, well, I think in part it's because it looks as if the the amount of nitrate that you need to take in to be ergogenic is is, is possible to um, to consume through the diet, but it's a bit tricky. Most people probably don't do it, so therefore supplementation might be a good idea to get you over that threshold so that you're taking in enough nitrate to increase your nitric oxide bioavailability. I mean, who knows? Back in you know thousands and thousands of years ago, probably we were eating more green plants and taking in more nitrate. Maybe we're somewhat deficient in, in that. As, uh, and some people believe nitrate should be classified as a vitamin, by the way, um, because well, it also is... We had, seems- we had a more healthy oral microbiota and a much better gut microbiota yeah we, that's probably true that is another factor yeah um <clears throat> what was the question oh yeah so no, but on the health thing you know and you mentioned blood pressure but um certainly one of the things that nitric oxide is most famous for is is vasodilation effects on the on the vasculature on the blood vessels relaxing them um and when you have a relaxed blood vessel you reduce blood pressure and one of the things that we see in our studies is that when you give people nitrate, their resting blood pressure goes a little bit lower. Not by much, and it depends It depends what your baseline blood pressure is. So if you've got a, if you're already slightly hypotensive or you're normotensive, the effects are really quite small. The more hypertensive you are, the bigger the effects are, which is a really pretty good thing. And the sorts of effect that you can get from nitrate supplementation are of the, you know, it can be five to ten millimeters of mercury for systolic and similar for diastolic actually in some cases and if you could reproduce that across the entire population including those that obviously are pre-hypertensive or hypertensive uh, folk in their older age you'd reduce the incidence of adverse cardiovascular events quite considerably so the number of heart attacks and strokes would go down you know overnight kind of thing so we shouldn't um, underestimate the, the health aspects of this and we don't think there's um, anything untoward about ensuring that you take in sufficient nitrate through um, through fruits and vegetables so so that's the one thing so you've got the blood pressure thing but um, obviously because it's doing things to the blood vessel it can change blood flow to muscle potentially um, and therefore oxygen delivery to muscle there's not so much evidence that that is the case in humans at least in normoxia it might be a slightly different situation in hypoxia um, there are some studies that indicate the muscle is better oxygenated in a hypoxic environment when somebody's taken nitrate in advance but nitric oxide i mean it does it does become difficult then to understand quite how it's operating but we know that nitric oxide is involved in mitochondrial respiration and there have been some studies not all of them again you know there aren't that, there haven't been that many studies done but typically um, they rarely agree with one another but there are studies that indicate that when you take nitrate Supplement, supplements in your diet that your mitochondria become more efficient. Mm. You can resynthesize the same amount of ADP to AD, ATP for a less amount of oxygen. So that would be that would be a good thing if that were true. Um, and then more recently, another mechanism that's been uncovered is effects on um, on calcium handling. So while this story started with endurance, actually just in recent years, it's getting more towards strength and power and speed and multiple sprint events and team sports and that kind of thing. So the reason that I think it's become a, you know, a go-to nutritional ergogenic aid is because it potentially has application across a lot of people and across a lot of different sports. But this effect on calcium handling not only could make um, muscle uh, more powerful and um, sort of less fatigue less fatigable but also that could be one of the explanations for why economy and efficiency are improved as well so if you're looking at calcium handling at submaximal work rates then if you can get the same amount of power for less calcium movement in and out of the sarcoplasmic reticulum you'll get a lower atp cost of exercise and that in turn would give you a lower oxygen cost so it gets a bit complicated by now but you know part of the energy cost of muscle contraction is is the calcium ATPase because you have to keep pumping calcium in and out and it's really energetically costly so if you could do that you could just pump the same amount of calcium for a bit, a bit less ATP usage you'd actually end up with better performance not just for endurance but for power sports as well because again for the this time for the same amount of calcium release you might get a greater force production so yeah it's um yeah, it's fascinating and um you know obviously i'm going to recommend people read a number of papers by yourself and some 
some um, researchers in your community that uh, I think are worth getting really deep into this stuff. But there are some areas that I find really interesting, and that is if I take this from the nutritionist's perspective, you know, I, I mean, the reason why we exist is because people don't eat properly. Um, and that isn't just about obesity, you know, overeating, you know, eating too much calories, if you like, tends to be less of an issue with athletes, although that can be an issue as well. But perhaps if we use the phrase quality as, as, a, as a focus where in, in your mind, when you think about nutrition, you think about quality, it tends to conjure up things like fruits and vegetables and so on. And of course, that is a source of these dietary nitrates, which feeds into our attempt, or at least I would hope most of it, sorry, all of us should attempt to be going down a food first path first. But then you mentioned ergogenic aid, of course. So then my mind splits as it does on these things. And on the one hand, it's, well, we need to optimize, you know, all these good things that we need to get from the diet to keep the body healthy and functioning normally. But if we want to go beyond that, um, and maybe in the realms of the ergogenic aid territory, that's a slightly different scenario, isn't it, of course? Which I can imagine for you as a researcher makes life particularly difficult because you first got to differentiate yeah. the, sort of the dysfunctional eaters from the okay eaters and, and so on. But if, if we just go down, if we go down this pathway of it's in the diet one way or the other, yes people will or won't be eating anything like enough and then well how much is enough anyway and what, what does that even look like on a plate so to speak and then and then we have to go beyond that to ergogenic aid territory so maybe if you can take us through a bit of a journey of sources of these you know these these things that contribute towards dietary nitrate intake into the body and it's um um you know, filling up the, the storage tanks, if you like, and the bioavailability process just to get it to, you know, to health purposes and then beyond that to what we need to do for performance, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Too much of a big question in one go. Yeah, I think um, you're, you're right. I think we should be encouraging people to choose you know, healthy foods on a day-to-day -day basis. And that's what governments do all the time. That's what the five-a-day thing is kind of about anyway, isn't it? Um, and it's remarkably hard to achieve is, is the problem. But interestingly, if you look at the epidemiological evidence, quite often it's, it's the green leafy vegetables that are particularly important for certainly cardiovascular, but maybe metabolic health as well. And you know whether it's coincidental or not, um, those tend to be the ones that contain a high content of um, inorganic nitrates as well. So it's, it's things like lettuce, spinach, kale, rocket, um, beetroot as well um, you can eat them whole or you know actually the reason that we use beetroot juice is just because it's kind of convenient it's much easier because you, you can juice it you can measure the nitrate and fluid really quite easily it's quite easy just to consume compared to having to eat a, a plate full of salad or something like that yeah. um, you know so there's that. it's also in things like carrots as well as in some fruits like strawberries the one thing to remember though is that it varies quite a bit from, so you can you can say that well the average content of spinach or, or um, kale or chard or something is X, um, but actually the standard deviation around that is really large. It depends on the conditions in which the plant was grown. You know, it depends on um, uh, the soil conditions, the time of year, where in the world, um, when it was harvested, how long it's been on the shelf before you take it, what you do with it when you. So when we report these values, they tend to be in you know raw form but then obviously if you cook them in some way or another then you're going to alter that so it's quite hard to know sometimes exactly how much nitrate has been taken by someone in the diet um, generally speaking vegetarians consume a bit more but actually not as much more as you might imagine um, but yeah and, and certainly you can have physiological effects when you consume a high nitrate diet just by deciding to choose those kind of foods and we've done studies which show that you can get an actual you know significant change in things like blood pressure if you choose those things and stick stick to them rigidly but it's quite hard to, hard to achieve and um, sorry because i want to visualize this for myself and for everyone i mean basically what i'm hearing and I've already deduced this, so I'm leading anyway. But I, I you know, from the research and 
and so on. But yeah, I mean, someone's going to have to eat a a very good diet from a nutritionist perspective. Um, and that means different things to different people, but either way, it's a challenge. Um, and certain types of athletes um, are more or less likely, particularly a lot of professional team sport athletes, although rugby players tend to be excellent at uh, eating whatever you throw at them. So um, that's all right. But, you know, I'm not being unfair to football players or whatever, but often soccer players for our international audience is what I'm talking about. But they tend not to eat maybe quite the same amount of these sorts of things. Um, And, of course, youth athletes, children, you know, you're a parent, I'm a parent, we know. (laughs) They just won't eat some of these things. So I guess what you're saying is that that just achieving an optimal amount for health purposes is a challenge one one way or other let alone you know going beyond that point right yeah yeah you have to eat a pretty big salad at least once a day to get close to the amounts that we think are you know but but that said eating any additional amount than you than you're eating at the moment is probably good and you're you're very unlikely to to have super super doses of it because you'd have to be you know you have to be like a rabbit all day chewing away at your uh, at your grass or something. But um, yeah, so so yeah. But then the supplement is is on top of that. But you need to be taking that. You know, we and others have shown that five or six millimoles per day, or in one sort of supplemental serving, is where you need to be really to to start to see effects on exercise performance. If they're going to happen at all, you won't see them if you take three or four millimoles you need to take enough but of course like with all of these things there's diminishing returns as well that doesn't mean to say that the more supplements you have the bigger the effect's going to be there's absolutely a ceiling there as well so taking any any more than 10 or 15 millimoles is unlikely to in fact won't make any difference any additional difference to your performance yeah and that's an important factor there because when you know through nutrition most of what we're trying to do is is just to bring people up to a point that they're consuming what they should be consuming for optimal function. But of course, you know, when we're talking about enhancing performance, that's beyond optimizing the diet. And what you have seen in your in your research and from other researchers is that in unlike in quite a few other things where more is not better. In fact, sometimes more can be a problem can't it you've actually found that 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 is the case that more can be better in certain scenarios of course which we'll get into um it's like a sorry it's like an inverted u type thing isn't there's an optimal amount you know if you if you have too little it depends what depends what you're trying to achieve like i was saying if you start with a baseline of zero then taking some is likely to be good for you at least from a health perspective if you want to have a performance effect it, it appears that you need five or six millimoles but taking it, then you've got a big plateau at the top, and then you know, maybe. But it's the same for um, things like caffeine and sodium bicarbonate. You know, there's an optimal amount. Um, if you take too little, you're probably not going to have an effect. If you take too much, uh, you're not going to get any greater benefit. And in fact, you might see some detriment in some circumstances. So absolutely, athletes need to be really well informed about why why a certain particular thing is is um, prescribed for them. It, it's it's like. It's like medicine. If a doctor gives you some medicine, A, you shouldn't not take it, and B, you shouldn't take double the amount. <laughs> These things yeah, have been well, My out. father does. He routinely takes half of what the doctor ever tells him to take. Okay. It drives me crazy. Yeah. But that's, uh, we don't need to have a therapy session right now. <laughs> um, and this is what I meant about understanding the strengths and limitations. Um, because, of course, again, in, re- you know, in research, when you talk about a certain dose, are we talking about for everyone, or does size matter, gender matter, age matter, the age, the age of the athlete, or the train, you know, the uh, the, the the length of time they've been an athlete, um, you know, are these factors as well that influence influences this. It doesn't seem to, to, to the, at least you know, to the same extent as with some other putative ergogenic aids. So when we talk about um, optimal doses, we tend to talk about them in absolute terms. It's partly because that's the way the research has been done, I suppose, and it's been mainly done in, you know, typically um, groups of young men weighing 70 to 80 kilograms, I suppose. That's part of it. You would imagine that if you were working with a, um, a female gymnast, that the amount of nitrate that might be effective might be a little bit lower than the 
range as we've talked about already. And if you're talking about a heavyweight rower or a second second row you know, male rugby player, 120 kilos, something, then it might be that you need you know, higher doses for sure. But nobody's really looked at those extremes yet. Um, yeah, but it's interesting when you when you give people of quite different dimensions and body weights the same absolute amount of nitrate, then when you look at the change or the elevation of nitrite in their blood, it tends to be pretty pretty similar, actually. So we're not necessarily seeing too much of a differentiator in terms of um, size. But it's interesting that you mentioned women. You know, nitrate isn't alone in this, but for sure there have been too few studies just on women, and we're just recognizing now that, you know, the there isn't really strong evidence that it's effective in women like there is in men. I mean, there's a meta-analysis done recently which looked at all of the studies that have been done over however long it's been going for now. Um, and some, some pretty interesting findings came out of that, but one, one of which was almost every, every study that has been in men or mixed groups, um, when you look at women, the effects look quantitatively similar, but when you do the meta-analysis on the relatively small number of subjects and studies that have been done so far, you don't get a significant benefit of nitrate in women, whereas you do in men. So that clearly needs to be, um, to be followed up. It might be that women process nitrate in a little bit different way um, to men. It might be the nitrate to nitrite conversion. It might be the nitrite to nitric oxide conversion. We don't don't really know. Um, I would be, I must say, surprised if women didn't respond more or less similarly to men. And this is only a you know, subjective, qualitative thing. But we've had mixed groups in many of our studies. A few, a few women and and some men, and. On balance, it looks like the women do similar things to the men, so we're not seeing any any great difference. But that doesn't mean to say that we shouldn't tease that out further and have a sufficiently large sample of men and women separately to see whether there are any differences. Yeah, I guess the the thing that crops up in my head in there is that you know that to a certain extent you can experiment. You know, we should always trial these things away from competition, and you know we'll, we'll get into types of exercise that might pose some benefits for. Um, but the cost to benefit sort of process that you go through as a practitioner or, or as a consumer thinking, should I, shouldn't I, I guess one of the main things beyond, you know, the, the expense of it, which is not that significant, um, particularly to professional athletes, but, you know, is there any health risk in taking these supplements? As you know, you mentioned some detrimental effects, some supplements can, you know, then they're not going to kill you or anything, but they'll just be very unpleasant. Um, what, what sort of risks could this potentially have as an ergogenic aid? I, I say very few at all, but you know, we, we should remember that nitrate has had a bad press in the past. It's got a history of being related to the formation of nitrosamines, which can be cancer-inducing. But actually, the evidence for that in humans is really weak. Um, in fact, there are some studies to indicate that the more nitrate that is consumed, the less risk there is of cancer in humans. You know, so if you go back to the original findings, there was um, they gave ridiculously supraphysiological megadoses of nitrate to uh, to rats, and the, in in the male rats, there was a slightly greater incidence of a particular form of of cancer, and, and everybody kind of latched onto that and went, "It's it's really bad." But we should also remember that. The, the nitrate and nitrite that's sometimes put in processed meats, mm. um, you know, that's a kind of a different scenario to you're kind of adding that. And, and clearly in that instance, you've got the potential, you've got the, the protein source, the amines, and you've got the nitrate and you could get some nitrosamine formation. Now, whether that eventually leads to cancer is another question. Again, but you, you might get some nitrosamines forming. Mm. Um but if you take inorganic nitrate in your vegetables, then you don't have the protein at the same time. You also consume a lot of vitamin C, antioxidants, polyphenols, and the, the likelihood of nitrosamines being formed is very, very much less. We've tried to measure and you simply can't. So first of all, the evidence for nitrosamines being formed when you consume nitrate in the way that we've been describing it today is, is very weak. And even if you were to produce nitrosamines, the link with that of that with cancer is pretty weak as well right. and if you link that with all the potential benefits that you might see from consuming more nitrate and you know there are all sorts of potential effects um 
in terms of metabolic control, um, for example, there's some studies on that. But in terms of cardiovascular health, if you know, the potential benefits of the vasculature is so you know you've got to balance all of this stuff out. And, um, and clearly, we have to be um, cautious and always think about what are what are the risks, what are the benefits. Yeah. Certainly, my personal view and that of um, I think a growing majority of scientists and nutritionists is that there's there's much more benefit than risk to be had in consuming more fruits and vegetables that contain more nitrate and, and potentially supplementing with with nitrate or nitrite if it's um if it's deemed a reasonable thing absolutely well that's definitely the position i've taken having um read up uh, on this and listened to you talk about it and others uh, in the past um i guess the only caveat to that is the consideration of where you get your nitrate supplements from and ensuring that they're not you know contaminated in any way or tested for banned substances the usual thing that is not necessarily always considered at least by the consumer if they're an elite athlete um particularly when some of these these products get rather popular in the press athletes might self-experiment without asking the you know the the nutritionist or the team doctor or whatever so um that's just one of these one of these things but other than that it's um it's clearly a good thing for us to try and uh eat appropriately through through our diet okay so look we we made it we, there's a clear case um to optimize the diet um from many perspectives fruits and vegetables you could talk to lots of different experts on different topics and they'd all agree on that um, now we're talking about the potential benefit of dietary nitrates uh, particularly in the form of a, a supplement uh, as an ergogenic aid can you just take us through then what is specifically the difference um, in how you know the bioavailability and the physiological influence this has on performance and the different types of performance that we could get into as opposed to just eating you know the regular diet right? like this is um, i use a phrase a lot which is you can but should you you know why you know let's help convince um the audience then as to why they really should consider this from a performance perspective what does it do how does it function and why would that wet wet our appetite for having it in our toolbox yeah so i touched on this a little bit earlier didn't i so um basically when you consume nitrate you will ultimately cause your um, blood nitrate concentration to go up um, some of that works its way into the enterosalivary systems concentrated in the salivary gland the bacteria in the mouth as we've discussed work on that reduce it to nitrites and then that gets digested absorbed through the intestine and the plasma another blood component nitrite concentrations go up as well so automatically you've got a higher nitric oxide bioavailability you've got all of that nitrite circulating around your body um, it's just a one electron reduction to go from nitrite to nitric oxide if that blood if you like um, reaches a part of the body that's um, relatively hypoxic um, or has a low ph that actually augments or, or promotes the reduction of nitrite to nitric oxide and then you could get vasodilation you could get greater oxygen flow to that area etc but we also know now that the nitrate and nitrite in the blood get old, you know, that gets across into muscle and other organs as well. Um, we're not quite sure the time course by which it does that, but, um, but it appears that muscle really likes to have um, quite a lot of nitrate in it at any one time. So most of the studies have been done in, in rats so far, um, a couple of studies in humans. But we find that the skeletal muscle nitrate content is quite sensitive to the diet. So if you don't eat nitrate for a few days, these, the nitrate store in the muscle becomes depleted. Now, presumably what's happening is that it recognizes that you haven't actually consumed enough nitrate and starts to release some of that into the bloodstream to support metabolic processes. When you consume more nitrate in your diet, then the nitrate concentration in muscle goes up. And very interestingly, if you starve a rat of nitrate for, say, a week, and then you reintroduce nitrate into its diet, the amount of nitrate that's stored in its muscles goes sky high. And it reminds me a little bit of what we found a long time ago with uh, carbohydrate and glycogen. Mm. So the muscle becomes somehow super sensitized. It doesn't, clearly doesn't like, you know, in inverted commas, to be starved of nitrate. And when it becomes readily available again, it's like, well, I want to hold on to this. 
which gives me the, you know, the impression that perhaps having sufficient nitrate in the muscle is important for contraction of the, and for muscular performance. So it looks like we need to have enough nitrate and nitrite in our body circulate, and that helps us um, with vascular control, with blood pressure regulation, with blood flow distribution. Um, but it also, as we kind of hinted at earlier, does things within cells, including within muscle cells. So it affects respiration, it, can, it affects contractility. So for all of those reasons, you know, there's, um, there's, there's both a health and a potential performance benefit, almost irrespective of the type of event or sport you specialize in. So you mentioned, I find it really interesting, the, um, you know, the sort of the restriction and then the super compensation type effect that you just pointed out occurs in other areas, like with carbohydrate and glycogen. And, you know, it's become quite popular now to get into, um, say, variations, what strategic periodization of, of, say, carbohydrates, for example, sleep low, train high, train low, and all that. Um, whereby my mind, you know, wanders over to um, to this, where perhaps there could be some form of strategic um, utilization to have a given, you know, impact on on exercise. Do you is this an area that you feel warrants some thought? What do you think about that? Because I know that you know some people will be going, well, hang on, how about if I eat loads of nitrate rich foods all day long, every day, just as part of my daily diet does that influence that process or do i just hammer these you know these uh, ergogenic aids during training every you know every day or a few times a week you know what is the yeah we, we don't know i mean there have been a few training studies done where nitrate has been consumed for i can't remember how many weeks it was now six weeks or 12 weeks i don't you know some some period of time um so you've got parallel groups some take a control or a placebo others take the nitrate rich and um a reasonable indication that certainly a trend um towards better performance and, and fitness gains if you do a training program alongside the, the nitrate supplement so so there's that but that doesn't mean to say you should necessarily be on it continuously i mean i, I probably wouldn't put anybody on anything continuously it's nice to kind of cycle on and off and, and whether there's some benefit to actual you know nitrate starvation it's almost like training in a in a carbohydrate depleted state would you get actually potentially more benefit if you deliberately train in a nitrate starved condition we just we just don't know i mean one of the things that the storage of nitrate in muscle tells us though i think is that while we've typically recommended that athletes consume nitrate on the day of competition two to three hours before the gun fires or the whistle blows or whatever and it has to be two to three hours to enable that processing of the nitrate into the nitrite if you take it on the start line you're not going to have enough time for that to actually be effective to work so it has to be a couple of hours before and we've always recommended that you do take some on the day of as well as potentially for a few days beforehand just as a sort of belt and braces well Actually, you know, if you've stored, if, if most of the effect is in the muscle rather than in the blood, maybe the effect, maybe the, the elevated nitrate and nitrite in the blood is not as important as the elevated nitrate and nitrite in muscle, in which case you wouldn't need to take it on the day of competition because we know, we think, that the, there's greater resilience and, you know, the muscle nitrate store probably stays elevated for considerably longer, whereas the blood nitrate and nitrite store actually, um, uh, you know, while while it peaks after two to three hours, it starts to fall after that, and then quite you know within twenty four hours you're back to baseline again. So that changes rather rapidly. So yeah, we we don't know whether you know while it's still probably a good idea to take some nitrate on the day off until we know otherwise. It might be the case that in the future we find that provided you've sufficiently loaded your muscle nitrate stores for a few days, that that final top up before you um, compete might not be needed. Yeah, well, that well, that's useful to know because, of course, there's a lot of things to think about on competition day, or you, know, you start panicking about taking your shots and like, did yeah. I get the time right? And certain events they delay the start times because of whatever. Um, yeah, induces all sorts of potential issues there, and obviously losing potential benefits if it's supposed to be taken acutely. You mentioned loading up the muscle. There, what about? From a different perspective, you know, the mechanical loading, the the impact of, of various types of exercise on the metabolic machinery and the, you know, the sort of the, the sort of biochemical and physiological plasticity of that, you know, of that environment. 
you know, is there is there anything there that's influential to, um, you know, to to this situation in terms of how maybe the body stores, handles, utilizes? Is it more sensitive, or is that just not really an issue we need to worry about? No, I don't think it's an issue. No, nothing's been looked at. No, I don't see how it would really affect it. And that that's great because that again, as you've mentioned, means that we don't need to be as worried necessarily with the timing of our intervention because you know we when you think about certain products like caffeine for example or sodium bicarbonate you know timing definitely can be a factor which can be pretty tricky um which i guess makes this much more friendly in terms of how how and when we utilize it because how and when is less complicated yeah i mean you're talking about if i understood you correctly sort of mechanical trauma a little mm. bit there right so if you if you actually mean um, muscle damage you know some people there have been some studies done looking at nitrate taken as in the recovery interval I mean we've been interested in in pre-exercise use so that you've got elevated nitric oxide bioavailability to support processes mm. um, within muscle and within the body when you exercise that might require nitric oxide but um, th there have been a couple of studies done where nitrate's been used in the recovery period, potentially as you know, as help with as a vasodilator or whatever it might be, or, but um, as an anti-inflammatory too. Now, the nitrate itself isn't doesn't have those properties, but beetroot juice because it comes with a lot of polyphenols, antioxidants, betaine, blah blah blah. There's a whole cocktail of stuff, um, and there have been studies which indicate that recovery from muscle damage, you know, delayed onset muscle soreness, is accelerated by taking beetroot juice. Now, as I mentioned, I don't think that's the nitrate, but it's the cocktail of, of the antioxidants that come with the, the nitrate, which are probably useful in actually promoting its health benefits also and, and making it more bioavailable. Um, yeah, so, so while beetroot juice is a good vehicle for nitrate, and while we've shown that, you know, when we, do, when we just give people the placebo, which has all of those other good things except the nitrate, and you don't really see any effects then, but there could be something about the combination of the nitrite with those other compounds and makes it better. And in fact, there was a study done once which compared beetroot juice with a given amount of nitrate to giving people the, the nitrate salt. I can't remember if it was sodium or potassium nitrate. And you get a bigger bang for your buck if you take your nitrate with all of those other components in a natural food form rather than if you take it as a nitrate salt. So that's quite interesting. Yeah, the, uh, we've, gone, we've gotten into the concept of the food matrix with all sorts of of people and um, not so long ago with uh, Nick Bird about how food matrix is, is potentially very important as it relates to how we look at protein and its values. You know, we science being science, of course, it's very reductionistic. So we like to come up with, um, you know, uh, a superhero leucine or, or what an mTOR or whatever. And do you, do you think that's possibly a factor here as well? Where you know, we're focusing on the, uh, you know, on the conductor or the uh, you know the trombonist, as opposed to the whole the whole the whole orchestra and the symphony that you know inf impacts upon the the body. Yeah, sort of. But I do think you know nitrate is the conductor in that analogy. Okay. And so yeah, I think nitrate is actually a big player. But it but it is better when it's served in its natural environment rather than isolated. I think. Brilliant. And I I don't want to I don't want to forget because I was asked to raise this. Um, you know, we're talking about performance, uh, and of course, in performance nutrition, we're also dealing with health and recovery and so on. But there are certain scenarios where uh, things like inflammation, for example, um, yes, are an important part of the adaptive response to training or, or influences adaptation, um, but it can also be a problem. And in certain sports, like impact sports, like rugby, American football, and so on. You know, is there a is there a, an argument for using dietary nitrate or supplemental nitrates in that scenario, perhaps to aid? Um, yeah, and I saw that that question come up on Twitter, and I think I just answered it in the in yeah. the my response to your last question. But yeah, it does seem that um, there can be some sort of anti anti inflammatory properties of the beetroot juice, and it isn't necessarily the nitrate that's responsible for that; it's everything else. Yeah. So uh, yeah, in terms of recovering from damaging exercise, whether that's through eccentric overload or through you know, mechanical trauma, maybe there's some role for it, but it's not something that we've specifically investigated. Yeah, brilliant. Yeah, no, I just wanted to, to make it really clear that that is, you know, a potential angle there. Because, again, when you look at 
you know, sort of research and they talk about muscle damage and dealing with the impact on, on that, we don't necessarily extrapolate that into inflammation, you know, as a result of, of impact sports, for example. Um, although that would be a pretty difficult thing to study generally, I imagine. Um, so if we try and differentiate um, a normal athlete from um, an elite athlete, for example, is that something that is relevant here? Uh, I know that has cropped up as a, an area of you know, controversy to a certain extent as to whether to or not to use this. Is, you know, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's, I'm glad you, you raised that. So first of all, when we talk about elite athlete, we need to differentiate what type of sport we mean. So an elite endurance athlete is potentially different from an elite power athlete. So, so it is certainly true that some elite endurance athletes benefit less from nitrate supplementation, at least in standard dose compared to lesser trained people. And, and there's a really nice meta-analysis. It's impressed with um, medicine, sports and exercise at the moment by a guy called Jack Senefeld out of the Mayo Clinic. And they looked at all of the studies that have basically been done. And it looks like if you've got to be, if you're fortunate enough to have a VO2 max of 65 and above, then the chances of you benefiting are, are pretty slim or non-existent. Now, it doesn't mean to say that there might not be responders within that. There are some very elite endurance athletes who genuinely believe that they respond to nitrate and they're not going to give it up for level money. If you have a VO2 max of less than 65, which, let's face it, is the majority of us these days, um, then the likelihood is that it could benefit. But again, there will be some that won't. There will be absolute non-responders. We're looking at means there, and clearly there are inter-individual differences in this. Um, so that's when we talk about endurance sports. When we're talking about elite power or team sports, we don't really know, but it, you know, it, it may be that it doesn't matter then that elite power athletes might benefit just as much. So Christian Jonvik, who was working out of Maastricht, you know, showed that um, elite actually had three groups, elite, sort of sub-elite and recreational, all doing Wingate sprints. And when she gave them nitrate in advance, while, while their peak power and their mean power was only different, their acceleration to the peak power was improved by nitrate in all three groups. Now, there are some sports, things like BMX, cycling, where generating power really rapidly, getting being the first guy to the turn or first girl to the turn, is the crucial thing. That's what mm. determines performance. So there are certain sports where... Um, even at the elite level, when it's power or multiple sprint, you know, that kind of orientation that um, the nitrate may still be beneficial. But it looks like elite endurance athletes don't benefit as much. And you can understand why that might be, of course, because first of all, they're probably producing lots of nitric oxide generally. They've got plenty of nitric oxide synthase enzymes. They may already be consuming a high nitrate diet or, you know, consuming lots of calories, which probably is pretty balanced, including plenty of nitrate containing uh, foodstuffs. Um, they've probably got very well adapted um, economy and efficiency anyway, plenty of mitochondria, very well oxygenated muscles. So the requirement for them to reduce nitrite to nitric oxide is probably not even not there. So it kind of makes a lot of sense why nitrate supplementation wouldn't necessarily be beneficial in athletes who are super aerobically fit already. Yeah, that's, I'm, I'm really pleased you, you mentioned that because, of course, there are still plenty of decent athletes, but they may not be at the super, super elite end of the spectrum. So I guess it's a question of determining that, but fair to say that a huge amount would benefit. Um, okay, look, so there's all sorts of stuff we could get into, and frankly, everyone can read about that in the various papers I'm going to point them towards. Um, um, I've also got a little science to practice uh, video that summarizes this that um, I'm going to make in the in the coming week or so. So hopefully I do it and use some justice on that. Um, but just quickly from a practical perspective, then um, with you know I think there's an argument here for for taking dietary nitrates, particularly as a supplement for ergogenic purposes. What what would that actually look like? And you know from a practical perspective, what are the various ways in which that can be done? Um, probably the, 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 all sorts of supplements have, have arisen over the last decade, haven't they? And they, they keep popping up all of the time. I, I don't really track it too much. I think you've got to be, um, 
you know, there, there are gels and there are powders and there are crystals and there are juices. You know, there's all sorts of kind of different um, different things. If you look at the nitrate content of some of those, it's not as high as it should be. It's not really very, it hasn't been verified. Some of the beetroot powders, for example, if you take a load of beetroots and boil them down, boil them down, all the nitrate leaches out into the liquor, mm. which is kind of dis- gets thrown away. So you end up with a beetroot powder that's got no nitrate in it. So it's probably not going to be you know, too good for you. So all that we've ever done in our studies and what we continue to recommend to our athletes is to use some beetroot juice, you know, concentrated shots of beetroot juice and they've become ever more, um, what's the word, sort of sophisticated. I think they really nailed down the taste and the, and the, the right con- content now. I can't even keep track of that. There have been so many different versions of, um, of, of the beetroot shot, for example, over the years. Uh, they've got gradually more concentrated um, but one, I think one of those shots contains about six millimoles of nitrate now, which in most cases would be inadequate. Yeah. So something like that. But, but yeah, there's lots of other possible ways of going about it. Yeah. Well, again, that just comes down to understand what you need, understand what the, uh, the athlete needs and just make sure that the, uh, the delivery mechanism is, uh, I mean, you need a bit of confidence in you. So obviously in confidence in that, so obviously it does matter where you get it from, but like you say, there's a lot of products out there. Just choose carefully. Brilliant. Well, look, thank, thanks, Andy. It's been awesome talking to you. Um, you. You've got a wealth of knowledge on this, and I love the sort of the the combination of the uh, the, the science and the practice side of this. Um, I'll link to some various papers and and so on, as well as our podcast we did on on this uh, many years ago. Now, um, if people want to follow you on social uh, uh, media or, or whatever, what's the best way of keeping time yeah. to work? Well, ironically enough, my Twitter name is at Andy Beetroot. Yeah. So uh, that's probably the best way to, to go about it. I try and keep um, keep followers informed of um, developments in this field if, if they're interested. And I, I sort of tweet more generally about sports nutrition and, um, and exercise physiology. So, yeah, some of your listeners hopefully might find no, some do, yeah. I'll point them towards your, um, your university your website, Exeter University, a fantastic university um, uh, sport and exercise science and medicine all sorts of stuff great place um, but you just reminded me of when I first met you um, after the lectures we took you and the other lecturers out for for dinner and uh, completely unprompted you chose the beetroot salad <laughs> oh, dear. I'm sick of the bloody stuff now never yeah, again I bet you are I bet you are well look th- listen thank you very much for your time I hope um, everyone enjoyed that as much as I did and got as much out of it as I did as well um and uh we'll get you back one day perhaps but the uh politics is a fascinating area that uh, you're you're also big on but we haven't got time for that now um so that concludes this discussion on dietary nitrates and performance um you're interested in this and previous podcasts and all the other uh outputs that we do at the institute performance nutrition including our uh, uh training and education program uh, aimed at practitioners in sport and exercise nutrition just go to www.theiopn.com i of course am lauren brown look forward to bringing another episode back to you all very soon